Welcome to Urban Principle, leadership lessons brought to you by BrettAndersonConsulting.com. And now here's your host, Brett Anderson. And welcome back to another podcast. We are episode 121, season three, Restorative Practices, part five. And we're going to try and wrap this up tonight since there's so much more we could continue to talk about and we'll continue to dive back into behavior from time to time as we get back into leadership as well. Um, jumping back into the book, Better Than Carrots or Sticks, Restorative Practices for Positive Classroom Management by Smith, Fisher, and Frey. They talk about students want teachers to bring out the best in them. Uh, they talk about addressing a student instead of lecturing them, saying something like, that's not the blank I know using their name. What's happening? In this way, we acknowledge the problem behavior without conflating it with a character flaw and invite the student to lead the conversation. Again, so we're saying we don't like the behavior, not the student. One of my favorite things to say, you know that. Uh, and then they go into the ABCs of behavior and talking about recognizing patterns of behavior so that we can correctly anticipate students' actions. Uh, they go on to say, if a student misbehaves in one class but not in another, he or she is waiting for us to notice the pattern. Unfortunately, we are rarely able to devote our full attention to analyzing the behaviors of a single student. It's vital to understand that what happens before and after a given behavior is just as important as the behavior itself. This chain of events is known as the ABCs of behavior, the antecedents to behavior, the behavior itself, and the consequences of the behavior. Antecedents are the events that trigger a certain behavior. Uh, sometimes they take time to develop into the behavior, for example, and sometimes they do not. And we've talked about, uh, at least in my presentations, we talk about uh, triggers and setting the students off. And we also have talked a lot about, uh, on the show, de-escalation and escalating students. And we don't want to do that, of course. We want to de-escalate uh, and keep them under control, uh, better control, and teach them the tools that they can use to stay under control. But the ABCs is also thinking about that functional behavior assessment, the time of day it's happening, what's going on, what's the function of the behavior, uh, does it warrant an immediate attention, should intervention be delayed or deferred, and what are ways to intervene with the student. And one of the important pieces uh, with the restorative practices, of course, is developing a restorative mindset. And it's uh, more complex than people think. And it's, uh, let me share something that they share about developing this mindset. Uh, beliefs about discipline are bound in our own experiences as children, educators, and parents. Discipline is informed by our sense of fairness, which we develop at a very early age. Studies show that children as young as 15 months old can detect when food is not equally distributed to others. And that was Schmidt in Somerville, 2011. Although our beliefs about fairness mature over the years, we've never, we're never too far removed from the small child who says or wails, it's not fair. Uh, with students, while students violate our expectations, we sense unfairness. As educators, we also bring our own beliefs about control to be on our approaches to discipline. Whereas some teachers hold the children are inherently good and will behave under the right conditions, others believe that students will naturally avoid work whenever possible and need to be constantly contained and redirected. Restorative practices can challenge such deeply rooted beliefs by asking us to shift our focus from rules to relationships. We must let go of the idea that accountability equals punishment, teach him a lesson, and so on. 
instead help students progress from acting out to remorse and repair. I'm sorry and I want to make amends. Empowerment is at the center of restorative practices, as evidenced in the principles that all parties involved in a conflict must contribute to its resolution, victims, offenders, and anyone else even indirectly affected by it. Students need to be taught and given opportunities to use their problem-solving skills. It would be a mistake to wait for conflicts to arise before enacting restorative practices. That's what we did early on, and it was a mistake. Uh, excellent advice, and then they go into some problem-solving skills. And they also talk about overcoming resistance. Uh, I think I'll address that a little bit more. And... Uh, from uh, another context here. Uh, jumping ahead to another uh, book that we've been using, Hacking School Discipline, Nine Ways to Create a Culture of Empathy and Responsibility Using Restorative Justice. These are great books, by the way, if you're starting on that road to restorative uh, practices. And this one's by Nathan Maynard and Brad Weinstein. And uh, some things that we liked in here, or I liked, and we started talking about some of their circle up activities and mindful breathing. And then they talk about a blueprint for full Im implementation. And they talk about rethinking redirection and thinking about guiding students towards the kind of decisions that will lead to their success. Um, so it's important to invalid, uh, acknowledge and validate the, the behaviors when you see them. And let me read something from their text here. Sometimes the best redirection is actually no direction at all. The students, the students have just finished painting and it's time to clean up and get ready for a math review. Corey decides he doesn't want to clean up or do math and throws himself on the ground in a tantrum. You decide to ignore him and instead help the other students put away the su supplies and thank them for their cooperation. Realizing his tantrum isn't getting him what he wants, Corey gets up and sits down for his math lesson. Now is the time for you to notice him, smile, and thank him for his help. The students who are being responsible and following directions will learn that their actions are desirable and help the classroom environment to be successful. While the students who are not being responsible will quickly quickly realize that their actions do not add value to the success of the classroom. So um, the student was using his behavior to get attention, and usually that was a tool that he used, obviously, to get attention. The teacher was not giving him attention for, for that behavior and was complimenting the other students. And I've always said that, look for the positives. And if you're uh, noticing the positives and... Um, encouraging the positives, you're going to see more of the positives. The more negatives you you talk about and the more that you address with the negatives, the more you're going to see. So look for those positives and um, actually compliment the students that are doing well. Ignore the uh, behaviors when appropriate to ignore. Another thing they talk about is establish restorative justice. As important as it is for students to know what you expect of them, it also they also need to know what will happen if those expectations aren't met. Ideally, your school will have a behavior system in place that outlines restorative strategies and more to come. Okay, they're talking about the, some of the things they're going to give you in the book. Um, and ways to document behaviors uh, across all classes and, and address issues. If this isn't the case, you'll need to create your own system. And everybody's using MTSSB now and PBIS uh, and positive behavior intervention supports. 
You or your school should be able to implement practices that are truly restorative for students. For now, whether you use a demerit system, a behavior chart, or something else, you need to establish consequences if you have done, not done so already. Setting and communicating consequences early allows you to address the student calmly and prevents a power struggle. The student already understands the rule, and it isn't personal when you simply follow through on something uh, you established from the beginning. And I like an example they give. Uh, they talk about preview, warn, and give consequences. Preview. Uh, the preview is a whole group reminder of your expectations, and this can include more specific guidance to students on how to meet the expectation. And it also anticipates uh, pain points, for example, or things that could go wrong. And uh, reminders, and then warning students. You can warn or address one student or a group of students not the whole class. The warning should be a reminder of the expectation and it should address the behavior that does not meet the expect expectation and should preview the consequence that will be given if the un unwanted behavior continues. And Randy Sprick would say, give that warning as a targeted response or a targeted request and do it quietly and specifically to that individual student and then back away. And it's important to get away and give them time to... Um, um, turn around their behavior or whatever it is that's taking place. And then they say give consequences, previewing and warning only to re work to reinforce or to enforce the norms if you follow through with consequences when necessary. Um, the consequences should be as understood as the expectations. The students should know exactly what will happen if they choose to continue a behavior after the warning, and then you'll need to know exactly how you will follow through. Only give one warning uh, that's the same thing with think time that I teach. Uh, think time was a, a non-confrontational uh, strategy used to give the, that 80 to 90 percent of that tier two a break and to get them to problem solve and get them back into rooms. But you only gave them one warning before you actually gave that think time. And some of you may do the same thing with a safe seat and so on. Maintaining relationships with students and maintaining the culture by enforcing the norms can feel like a tricky balance, but the more you front load, the less personal redirection you have to do. And, of course, they talk about also building those relationships so that you can restore that relationship and you can keep that relationship and uh, maintain the relationships. We're going to help keep, keep your school strong and your classroom strong and your community strong. All right, jumping into Hacking School Culture, Designing Compassionate Classrooms. And this was by uh, Angela Stockman and uh, Ellen Fig Gray. And there are a lot of things in here. Um, they do some good things on problem solving. And they talk about some strategies you can do today or tomorrow. Uh, holding morning meetings. So one way to establish a peaceful community of respectful learners is to hold, is to hold a morning meeting. And you could start turning those into uh, peace circles or whatever you want to call them and start having a talking stick and teach what it means to uh, speak when you're using that talking stick, Speak, uh, talk about the ground rules for those uh, peaceful circles or whatever you're calling your, your morning meeting and address a lot of different things at that morning meeting besides building cooperative, collaborative relationships because that's your overall goal so that people understand they're a part of something and helping them to belong. And if they feel like they belong, there's going to be less chance of them uh, giving behaviors that are outside of what you expect for your classroom. And uh, ongoing conversations with individual students. And they say sometimes this is called a 2 by 10 strategy. And I know a lot of you have heard about the 2 by 10 strategy, right? That involves uh, speaking to an individual student for two minutes for 10 days in a row. 
and these in these conversations the students can talk about anything they want and you don't tell them you're doing this but you call them over and talk to them and if you do this for 10 consecutive days you can build relationships with them I still like uh, Love and Logic and Jim Fay's using I have noticed statements that's another good strategy and then they talk about using time-ins and not time-outs. Instead of punishing misbehaving students with time-outs by removing them from the classroom or separating them from the group so they can think about what they did, consider using a time-in. Time-ins are intended to help students calm down and regain control of themselves without the shame of punishment and isolation. I isolation, excuse me. As opposed to leaving the student to their own devices in a time-in, the adult may engage calmly with the student by leaning in to find out what was going on by practicing empathy and the teacher facilitates the student's skill building in communicating compassionately by helping the student identify feelings and distinguish emotions from facts and investigating the root cause of the trouble. It is important that the teacher chooses their body language carefully, that is, maintains eye contact, modulates the volume and tone of their voice, smiles and lowers themselves to the student's level so that they are modeling a respectful conflict resolution stance. They may even use to tell a story or use humor or use I statements. Um, and then they off, uh, they go on to say oftentimes when there is a disruption in the classroom due to conflict between student or students acting out, these students welcome having a place to go to calm down and cool off, and this can be set up ahead of time too, especially if you know your students well, and you can offer them this pre-designated cool-off corner or zone of the room specifically for time-ins, and the time-in is still just like a time-out, but you're just calling it uh, rewording it into more of a positive uh, frame. Uh, when students just need a space to cross, uh, process their feelings and disengage from a group but still feel part of the community. So they're still hearing what's going on in the classroom. They're still a part of that actual community. And you can also use uh, mindful breathing and naming emotions. And maybe you have some little charts that you can name emotions and so on. But there's a lot of different strategies you can use within that. And then rehearse peaceful solutions to conflicts and uh, role-playing is one way they say you could do that and uh, discussing them in your groups and uh, talking about conflicts and, and respectful, compassionate exchanges and through role-playing you can do some of this. You can even have students journal about conflicts and resolutions, uh, journaling about conflicts uh, that our students are involved in or have witnessed or read about in literature or history books can be a powerful learning tool for them by asking them to reflect and write about how they and others feel or felt when the conflict occurred and to track those feelings as the conflict was in the resolution phase they will build empathy and empathy remember is a good strategy for getting rid of bullying and so on I mean there's a lot of good skills involved with that and what are the things you can do as a school and I know this I don't want this to get too long again last time I spent a little too much time and I like to keep these shorter so that it's something you can listen to in the car or something you can listen to in a break or something uh, in more short term but uh, some of the things they say is assess your school policies for resolving conflicts and make sure they are following a conflict resolution skills through positive or proactive activities and modeling compassionate uh, communication and um, on how you uh, are handling conflicts within your school. Dis determine your school climate type. Educational institutions vary widely in their school climate types. Some can be characterized by an atmosphere of power and authority, others by caring and a respectful ten uh, tenor. And organizations 
such as the National School Climate Center, have developed ways to assess school climate as well as provide resources to help school leaders build and sustain healthy and safe schools. School climate is something students, parents, and visitors can feel when they walk into the school building, and we've talked a lot about school culture. And um, they go on to say school culture is more about how teachers and staff work together and their shared values and assumptions. Both school climate and school culture affect student learning and they have a direct relationship to how safe students feel emotionally and physically. Because if it's an atmosphere where you work with students and you help students, the kids know that. And we've always talked about school culture and how important it is. Other things they say work with school leaders and school counselors to agree on creating a safe school climate and how you can uh, develop compassionate communication and nonviolent conflict resolution is the norm or where nonviolent conflict resolution is the norm. Establish a school culture where random acts of kindness are the norm. Uh, that's a big one, too. And some of the things they say of over, overcoming pushback is we can't afford to lose valuable instruction and time to teach conflict resolution skills. And they say we can't afford not to take the time to teach compassionate communication skills. When conflicts arise in the classroom, whether minor or major, between students or between students and faculty, uh, we must all be equipped with conflict resolution skills that are respectful and compassionate. Learning and practicing these skills also preempt escalation of conflicts, conflicts that are distracting and disruptive to learning and classroom flow. And that would also uh, help us to restore that uh, relationship and help you to actually get back to learning in a more effective way if we have those relationships. Um, and then another one, I'm, I'm going to jump through a few of those that are the most important, and they say another one is, uh, it's not my job to teach students interpersonal skills. It's outside my scope as a teacher. Whether you know it or not, you are teaching interpersonal skills by setting examples for your students about how to handle conflict anyway. Your behavior and your language you use is a powerful lesson, even if you do nothing to proactively teach conflict resolution or actively help your students build their social and emotional skills. So as we get ready to wrap tonight, uh, there are so many things you can do to uh, develop restorative practices in your school uh, culture. And remember some of the resources that I've been using throughout this uh, five-part series, uh, Better Than Carrots or Sticks, Restorative Practices for Positive Classroom Management by Smith, Fisher, and Frey. Highly recommend the book. Excellent resource, Hacking School Discipline, Nine Ways to Create a Culture of Empathy and Responsibility Using Restorative Justice by Maynard and Weinstein. And that is an excellent resource. And Hacking School Culture by Angela Stockman and uh, Gray. And that is another excellent resource. And there's more actually out there. We've also been using some uh, excerpts from Behaving to Belonging, The Inclusive Art of Supporting Students Who Challenge Us, and that's from ASCD, and that's Julie Coston and Kate McLeod. And maybe I'll finish uh, with a piece from that book as we wrap up tonight. And, and they talk about moving from control to love more, and they talk about... Uh, nevertheless, if we are to reach our students despite these real issues, we must take on the following. Believe that all students are capable and motivated to learn academically, emotionally, and socially. And that's what I always say with behavior anyway, is we have to believe that all students can change or do things better. Uh, respect our students by allowing them to have ownership in the process of this learning and decision making. Trust that our students like us are committed to building and sustaining a caring classroom community and understand that everyone has less than good days and that on those days we need more love, trust, and caring, not less. 
And let's go ahead and wrap up. And as we wrap up tonight, our quote is, the trouble is if you don't risk anything, you risk even more. And that was by Erica Jong. And like I always say, keep, promo keep promoting effective leadership through productive culture changes. And until next time, let's remember to stay positive. listening to Urban Principle. Leadership lessons brought to you by BrettAndersonConsulting.com.